Welcome to the Airman Helping Airmen podcast. I'm your host, Khalith Wright, CEO, Air Force Aid Society. Join me as we chat with extraordinary guests, share stories, and learn how amazing people are making a difference in the lives of so many Air Force and Space Force families. Welcome to the Airman Helping Airmen podcast. I'm John Farrell, the Chief Operating Officer of the Air Force Aid Society. And on the line today, I have Christopher Perkins. Let me tell you a little bit about Chris before we get started here. Chris is a Marine Corps vet. He was a captain in the United States Marine Corps for nearly a decade. As he was serving, he was a commanding officer of Battalion F, 2nd Battalion, 11 Marines. And he was a fire support corps coordinator in the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, and served some time in the Middle East and Iraq. He's the co-founder of Veterans and Digital Assets, and that's responsible for helping veterans, service members, and military spouses secure jobs in the growing digital asset and crypto fields. He's also the co-founder of Veterans on Wall Street, an initiative dedicated to honoring former and current military personnel by facilitating career and business opportunities in the financial services industry. He serves on the National Leadership Council for the Bob Woodworth Foundation. He's a member of the Board of Advisors for the Academy Securities as well. His educational background, he earned a Bachelor of Science in Engineering Poli-Sci from the United States Naval Academy right down the road in Annapolis, Maryland. And what I found interesting was Chris was an exchange student, crossed over to the blue for a little while for a couple of years, and was at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs for two years. After that, he completed his Master's of Arts from uh, Georgetown University in National Security Policy Studies. And of course, at the end, we'll go ahead and talk about all of his social media and things that go there. So before we get started, Chris, how are you today? How are things? I'm well, thank you. That was quite a mouthful. Thanks for having me on, John. Appreciate it. Tell everybody where you are today. I am based in New York, live here with my family and my dogs. That's a wonderful thing. I was just in New York City this past week attending the Summit for Moral Leadership and had a really good time while I was there and got home last night from Union Station. So what I want to do first is talk a little bit about your experience wearing the uniform in the Marine Corps. So you're obviously a Marine Corps vet. Tell me what made you choose that branch of service and why did you decide to serve 10 years and get out? Why did you not retire? Yeah, thanks for the question. I grew up in rural New Jersey, if there is such a thing, out in the countryside and small town. I really wanted to see what the world had to offer. Grew up in humble beginnings and was able to get a commission in the U.S. Naval Academy, but I always wanted to be a Marine. I don't know why, but maybe it's the challenge. I always saw that as a, the right fit for me. Wanted to be a warrior. It was always something that I wanted to do. So yeah, I went to the Naval Academy with that in mind. And to your point, I had the opportunity to go to the Air Force Academy for a semester, which was a great break. No, I'm just kidding. It was a great experience. Always beat us in football. But then yeah, I graduated, went off nine years into the Corps. And gosh, what an incredible journey it was. Wouldn't take it back for anything. Loved every second of being in the Marine Corps, being Marine officer. I've never met a Marine officer who didn't love being a Marine officer because it's just an incredible experience. Spent the first part of my career after going through training in Hawaii. And so like going from New Jersey to Hawaii was definitely a great trade. And then um, spent a lot of time in throughout Asia, Okinawa, and then I ended up in downtown Ramadi. When I came up on my five years, I knew that I couldn't get out because I graduated in 97 and then obviously went through 9-11 
being from the New York City area, my sister was impacted, had a bunch of friends that were impacted. In fact, one of my good friends, we just lost him to cancer. He was one of the first guys on the scene. He was a Marine, a guy named Tony Egan. But so I was really impacted by 9-11, stationed in Japan at the time. And I knew that I just couldn't get out. So I decided to stick it out, ended up going to school. I actually got orders to Mississippi of all places. I was able to, to work some magic, got rid of those orders and ended up in the Middle East working for Jim Mattis in Ramadi in 2004, which was a really, really tough time for us. It was some of the toughest urban combat that the Marine Corps really had seen since the Battle of Way. Uh, it was part of the, the shaping phase for the Battle of Fallujah. And then, then gutted it out with 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines for months in Ramadi, where we were up against a really challenging enemy, took a ton of casualties, learned a ton. And um, as I rotated back, I took command of, I was an artilleryman, so I'm an artillery battery. Then I was at that nine-year mark and a couple of things I could stay in. I was looking at going into other parts of government service. But then I met my wife. You know, She introduced me to the world of finance. And so literally I walked into Lehman Brothers one day and I knew a Marine that I'd served with. Gosh, I found it super interesting and I decided to make the transition. That's great. So a few key points of what you mentioned that I kind of got a kick out of, of course, recognizing that it was a little bit different going from the Naval Academy over to the Air Force Academy. So it's so ironic you mentioned your desert time. I hung up the uniform in 2005, and I had some Middle East time. And there were some joint assignments. And whenever I heard some of my Air Force brethren complaining about what I would consider nominal, trivial nonsense, I had a gunny sergeant. I retired as an E-9, but I had a gunny sergeant who was on the council with me. And, and I got a kick out of his quote. His direct quote was, our idea of quality of life is having a tent with a window in it. Get over it. <laughs> you know, so that kind of set everything in foundation. It's funny you mentioned Quantico. I live, or the Marines, I live about six miles from Quantico. There's a local establishment there that I like to go by. And whenever I go in, because I'm one of the lone Air Force guys, they jokingly yell out Air Force One. So I love the <laughs> Marine brethren. They're great folks. And I guess what I would ask you is, can you think of one standout failure or success when you were wearing uniform that you've learned from that maybe you've adapted in your civilian life? Yeah. And by the way, the greatest thing for us in, in Iraq was we were able to have a gym and we thought that was just the greatest thing ever that we could fight through and then come back and lift. So that was great. Yeah. So let me talk about story in Iraq. I had, I don't want to say unlimited, but I had a lot of money that I could deploy. It was one of my responsibilities was to help rebuild the city. And the problem that we had was I would have to find Iraqi contractors to pay. And what was happened is every contractor that we would hire they would eventually leave the base, they would get killed, their heads would get chopped off, and they'd make a video of it. And so it was incredibly difficult to find a contractor. Went through 100 different names, called them all up, said, hey, I want you to help me rebuild the city. Finally, a guy showed up, very well-dressed, walked right into the gate. They start shaking your head, and you're like, how did this guy make it? Why isn't he afraid? And I uh, said, okay, listen, I want you to build me a school. And he said, okay, give me a down payment, gave him a little bit of money, built this beautiful school. When the time came, that opening ceremony, I paid him the rest. And the next day, guess what happened? It was blown to the ground in smithereens. I don't know if it was he that did it, if it was the bad guys that did it, but I realized like, what a fool, right? And so from then on, I was like, that's it. If you want to do anything, you're going to pave roads for me because I can observe that. And we're getting hit by IDs and clean up garbage because that's what we're getting hit with. So you always had to learn about how to outthink and outwit. I mean, that happened on a daily basis as you're trying to really use your mind to innovate and win the hearts and minds in a place that it's very hard to do so. I'm sure. So as part of that, I'm sure your perspective, your values, your life journey since it was shaped by your time in the Middle East. In what ways does it affect you today? 
Yeah, it gives you incredible perspective. So remember on December 23rd, 2004, I was sent out to... We had... It, Ramadi was the capital of the Al-Anbar province. And we had a mayor who was the mayor of the city. And then we had the provincial governor. We got a new governor that was appointed by Baghdad. The mayor said, listen, he's not my guy. He's Baghdad's guy. I'm out of here. And he decided to leave the government center. When he left the government center, he went to... He's like, hey, we're moving out. We're like, we can't protect you. He moved out. Immediately, the bad guys came in. They blew his building to smithereens. I think they kidnapped a couple of his sons. I was sent in because the blast was so big that the village surrounding like lost its windows. It was getting cold. So went out there to provide some humanitarian assistance, plastic on the windows, give them some water and help them wherever we could. As my convoy, we were surrounded as we were providing this humanitarian assistance. As my convoy left, they had lined our egress routes with IEDs and I got hit. I still have a piece of shrapnel from that day. Missed me. My ears rang. Couldn't sleep that night because the adrenaline was pumping. But darn, it was really one of the closest calls that I had. And when you're in that kind of environment, there's God knows how many close calls you have. But like, I think about that a lot. I think about it every December 23rd. And what it gives me is it gives me incredible perspective. I had breakfast one day with one of my really good friends, a guy named Pat Rappacult, who was killed hours later. And so like, I always flash back to those times and I'm like, gosh... I'm so lucky to be here. Like, I am so lucky to be here. Every breath that I breathe is such a privilege for me. And so it gives you this perspective that in the worst of times. So I later went through the insolvency of Lehman Brothers. I was sitting on the trading floor when we blew up. I just recently, most recently went through a terrible crash in the cryptocurrency industry and where I live today. And no matter how bad the day is, it's not worse than what I've been through. And it gives me perspective. It gives me motivation. And it also gives me a sense of impatience because I don't know how much time I got left here. And so I got to work really quickly to do as much as I possibly can. Because I think about that breakfast with Pat or that IED in the 23rd, or my buddy, Mike McGreevy, that was killed in Afghanistan, trying to go in and during the lone survivor mission, left a one-year-old, or Tony Egan that went to go save people at 9-11. And like I mentioned earlier, died of cancer recently. So like, got to move, got to get things done. It gives me this perspective that I think is a secret weapon that I try to use. Well said. Thank you. And very similar experiences, man. When I look back, I was blessed to get out of there without any injury as well. So, I mean, it's one of those things that we're so fortunate. And it always reminds me, since I'm sitting about a half a mile from Arlington National Cemetery, when I visit some brothers and sisters there that I serve with that are no longer with us. So it's very humbling. So thank you again, Chris, very much for your service. And we'll go ahead and we'll transition a little bit now into some of uh, your civilian work and what you've done since you've hung up the uniform. So, you founded a number of organizations that support veterans and service members. What inspired you to continue your service after you left the Marine Corps and get into that line of work? Every job I've ever gotten in my life is due to a fellow serviceman or woman. When I transitioned into, into finance, a lot of people opened doors for me. It was a Marine that I knew at Lehman Brothers. And it was like the A-team. If you could find them, they would help you. And I thought we could do a lot better job of institutionalizing it so that as people transition, they would have something to grab onto. And I did just that. And so I started the first Veterans Network. I So went to Lehman, tried to get something off the ground, was, was making some progress, but then we went bankrupt. Went to City the following day to, due to the help of a veteran, started a job there. And after the global financial crisis, it's funny, I was watching an Obama State of the Union address one night. And there was only two things that Congress agreed on at the time. The first was that banks are bad. And the second was that veterans are good. And that was the only thing that the Democrats and Republicans agreed on. 
I was like, well, gosh, I'm kind of in the middle of this. Sure. And so what can I do to help fix banking? And we did something pretty magical. After I started the first Veterans Network at City, it was crazy. Like I thought I'd have a few people that would join, but people came out of the woodwork. Oh, my dad was a vet. Oh, my sister, my uncle, whatever. And it just spread like wildfire. And I was able to link up with a very senior member of the company, a lady named Suni Harper. Her dad was a World War II vet. She's the president of UBS Asset Management. And we got together and we're like, how do we institutionalize this for the greater good? We did something crazy. We actually called all of our competitors and we said, why don't we put our competitive differences aside, band together, and uh, see what we can do to strategically bring veterans into finance. That's how something called Vows was born, Veterans on Wall Street. Didn't love the name, still don't love it, but Deutsche Bank, it was their idea and uh, couldn't think of anything better. So I'm like, fine, well, we'll use the word vows. Look, started that in 2011 or so, 10 years later, raised $15 million. Gosh, we've trained thousands of people on how to get jobs. I, hard to track exact statistics, but I think we have hundreds of people impacted and, and helped them find jobs. And it was all done like just out of through volunteer work. So it's something I'm super proud of. That's the story of, of vows. And then more recently, as I transitioned into the crypto industry, again, what an incredible opportunity where you have this emerging crypto industry that could probably use the values and ethics of veterans to come in. And it's an exciting field. It's an innovative field. The qualities that, that veterans can bring to the space. I mean, I used to run around Ramadi where there was no rule of law. It was very complex, dynamic, very quick moving. There's so many parallels to some of my experiences. I think the qualities that veterans bring to this space are just so profound. And so we did the same thing, same kind of model. But the difference now with veterans and digital assets is the community building tools are just so much better. So for anyone listening, please reach out to me and on Twitter at PerkinsCR97 or LinkedIn. And um, we'll get you into the Discord where there's a community that's waiting to help. Hundreds of vets and supporters already in there to teach people about opportunities in the digital asset space and just for general education purposes. So it's, it's the community formation tools are really exciting, John. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And it's fantastic on your success and very much similar parallels. I've done a number of these podcasts, Chris, and I shared with the gentleman last week this year. So one of the ways that I give back is I teach a four-hour course on interview techniques and resume preparation. And I always jokingly say when John Farrell left the Air Force, I would not have hired him either with his February 1st, 2005 resume because you don't know what you don't know until you physically experience it. So I think it's so important that we give back, and I'm so happy to hear that you do that. Now, I teach Air Force and I teach Marines. And you can imagine when I'm teaching Marine, it's a little bit different because of the way they view the world through their lens it, not so much. And the classic example that I'm sure you can appreciate, it's funny you mentioned the gym, was I'll see on their resume bullets that read, number one fitness program on base, da, 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 da. And I say, you know what? We're fat out here. We don't understand the significance of that. you got to take your experiences and lead that to where a civilian will ultimately hire you. So what experiences do you have in that realm? How do you help transitioning Marines or service members find employment. I know you said networking is important and I would totally agree with that because I'm a product of that, but what else do you do to help them? Let me give you a tip first on the Marine Corps. Use crayons wherever possible. That's what we understand. Right. I'm just kidding. Look, job preparation is incredibly important and it really starts with networking, right? There are thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people that have made the transition And most of them are very, very eager to help. My personal journey was I had a relative who had been in Harvard Business School and I called him up and I'm like, hey, can you send me your the format for your resume? 
And it took a really long time. I mean, it used to format, so I had that, but it took a really long time for me to do that translation. And the thing about resumes is that you talk to 100 people, they'll give you 100 different pieces of advice. And it's always hard to find out what the right thing is. On resumes, it's important to really target the resume towards the job that you're applying. I mean, each resume should kind of be unique to that job. But a resume is only good because it just gets you in front of the people, right? And so you can actually short circuit a lot of that by getting to know people. And so like... If you're looking for transitioning for for a job and you're transitioning, you got to start early, early as possible. The other problem that veterans have is they don't know what they want to do. And like, I can't tell you, I've had scores of them come to me and say, well, what should I do? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, what do you want to do? And so it's imperative that you do a lot of due diligence. You do a lot of informational interviews. You get to know people. And it's not a search for a job per se. It's a search for people. That's how I like to deem it because those are the people that you're going to work with. Those are the people that are going to train you when you don't really don't know anything. They're the people that are going to pay you as well. So search for people and it's going to just so happen that the people that you like to be around and that you learn from the most are probably in a field that fits you. So that would be my advice. There are incredible tools now to network. LinkedIn is wonderful and other places. So like most folks will always open doors. Look, there are plenty of there are a couple of veteran support organizations that can can help provide like high touch. They're out there. There are plenty of other job networks. Like my company, we're hiring like 400 jobs, something like that across portfolios. So it's about identifying what you want to do, getting yourself up to speed, and then surging, right? Finding those people. And another thing is like from a bandwidth perspective, you need to find you need to network yourself to the right decision makers. You don't want to just spend an inordinate time with a junior person who doesn't have hiring and firing decision-making capabilities. And then finally, I think I wrote a piece on this as well. You have to walk the walk and you got to talk the talk. And what I say, what I mean by that is you have to dress the way that the people expect you to look in the role. And you have to understand the vernacular. There are certain little words that people use in different industries. Because when you start talking like them, you start looking like them, then they can start visualizing you in the seat. And so those are just little tips that you need to think about. You don't want to wear gym shorts to a banking interview, but then you also don't want to wear a suit to apply for a job at the gym. So you really have to be very leverage your, your EQ as well as your IQ and, and as you navigate. Great. Well said. So funny you mentioned the vernacular because sometimes you just don't realize it until you're experiencing it. And here I am years later and a couple of years ago, I was blessed for my boss to come in and say, John, I want you to be the COO. And I was using certain terms that I didn't realize. And he goes, John, don't say that. I'll give you a pretty example. I said, hey, we really need to rally the troops. He goes, John, last time I looked, there are no troops around here. We have employees here, but we're not rallying troops. You're so right that you have to use the proper vernacular. So where I sit within four miles, all the sister societies, Navy, Marine Corps Relief, who you're probably familiar with, us, the Coast Guard Mitchell Aid Society, to include the American Red Cross, that we all hang out and we each have our own individual identity. We each have our own individual programs. So one of the things that we offer is what we call community programs. And it specifically targets things such as spouse employment and child care. So how do you decide where you focus your efforts when you're dealing with a veteran and you're trying to advise them? I love the focus on spouses as well. That's been a core area of focus for us. I mean, spouses are just an incredible underserved resource. And the biggest difference between 10 years ago and today is that remote work is like encouraged in many places. Like I'm talking to you from my home here today, I'm at work. And so it's just a wonderful thing to think about. And that's how I'd answer the question is like, geographical boundaries are now being taken away. And so talent 
you can find talent regardless of where you're living. That's a major unlock. And it's just important that we continue to educate employers about just the valuable demographic that spouses bring to the table. And like flexible working hours as well. One thing, I'm in crypto right now. Guess what? It's a 24-7 market. I can wake up anytime and my markets are open. It's wonderful. I think that provides incremental flexibility for childcare requirements as well. And trust me, I've, I've got a couple of kids. I know how challenging that can be. And so I think that the incremental flexibility of certain industries helps. Great. That's funny. Let's talk a little bit about the crypto experience. So there's something about working in the military that lends itself to later professions such as finance, crypto, or digital assets. So are you currently worried about the prospect of an economic downturn of validity in the crypto web space? Or what's your concerns? Or maybe you don't even have any in that concern. I assume you do in light of what happened recently. Yeah. So around the crypto space, I think it's really important to zoom out and to realize what this new technology delivers and the opportunity that it presents. Bitcoin was created in 2008 out of the financial crisis. Ethereum, which is the second largest cryptocurrency, was born 2014, 2015. So the preponderance of the technology that I look at is less than five years old. It's incredible. So we're very, very early in the process. And just like any other new technology, I believe, we believe that this technology is going to be generationally changing. Why is that? It's because if you look at just a quick look through history, what blockchain technology does, it's a fundamental innovation on the ledger itself. And what's a ledger? A ledger tracks ownership, it tracks assets, and it tracks liabilities. The ledger was started in Mesopotamia 7,000 years ago. For us who used to work in that part of the world, Mesopotamia led civilization for centuries. It's where algebra was created, alcohol was created, right? And a lot of people, I personally attribute that to the fundamental innovation where the ledger was started. It allowed civilization to grow. There was a second innovation on the ledger in the Renaissance with double entry bookkeeping, and we saw what happened there. Now, through blockchain technology, we can more seamlessly track in a trustless, permissionless, peer-to-peer manner, the transfer of assets and the transfer of title, right? It has the ability to unlock incredible efficiencies across our society. And everything that we do is instantaneously global, right? And so if you launch a protocol, it's not like you start McDonald's in California, you move it to Chicago, and it slowly builds over the next three decades. No, we release it, it's instantaneously global, anybody can access it. And so we believe that there's incredible value with the technology as it matures, and it's maturing very, very quickly. We're excited to see regulators and governments hopefully put together responsible innovation. I mean, if you look at the Biden administration, they've said, listen, we we believe in the technology. We want to make sure that, that we are facilitating responsible innovation through in our approach. And by the way, again, I talked about bipartisan support. This is an area that Republicans and Democrats are actually aligned again. They both want responsible innovation. Everybody wants it. It's an American value. And the last thing I'll tell you about crypto is that it's truly a democratic technology. It aligns with our values. And why is that? If you look at the evolution of the internet, what we call Web2 is really predicated on social media. And the way social media works is that you have a handful of guys that control the internet right now. It's very centralized. To the extent that you're on the internet, they take your data, they take your privacy, and they monetize it, right? What Web3 allows you to do is it allows you to put private property into the internet for the first time. It allows you to form communities, issue them tokens that allow them to vote 
which is very democratic in nature. And so it's this move back from almost like a monarchy where everything is controlled by one individual, maybe five and across the internet, to one where communities can put, it's called the creator economy, where you can actually have value, have digital assets into the internet that you can control. It's self-sovereign. You don't need intermediaries. You don't have to go to a bank and ask for them, hey, will you give me a loan? If you meet A equals B, then C. If your collateral is X, you get the loan. So I think there's a great... It's very inclusive. It's very democratic. It personally aligns with my ideals of, of what, and I think it, what I believe American ideals to be. Great. Thank you for sharing that. In our remaining time, Chris, I want to refocus our efforts again back on veterans transitioning. So one of the things that you did is you created Veterans and Digital Assets and Veterans on Wall Street, two organizations that help former and current military secure employment. So you mentioned a little bit about it, but how can some veterans access and find you and what specific outreach efforts do you do for them? Right. So for veterans on Wall Street, there are some individuals. Best thing to do right now would be to connect to the Bob Woodard Foundation. You can go on their website and ask for programs. We just had our annual symposium that was hosted at, at Citigroup this year, and they can tie you into the veterans on Wall Street events. On Vita, Veterans and Digital Assets, we have a Discord. A Discord is it's a platform that allows you to coordinate communities. You can also follow us on Twitter. It's uh, Vita BWF. And by following us on Twitter, you can reach out to us. Uh, we'll get you into the Discord. And once you get into the Discord, there's like hundreds of veterans. We've got different channels to the extent you're looking for employment. We can align you with entrepreneurs. We can align you with various in real life events, as we call it. So that's the best path there is to get into the Discord. And of course, you can always reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Again, my handle is PerkinsCR97. Great. Can you think of one specific story or example that you're most proud of in your efforts? Oh, gosh. I'm sure there are many, but does one stand out where you say, man, I really took care of this guy or gal and, and here's what they're doing now? Man, there are a ton of people that we've touched base with over the years. I mean, hundreds of people that... What I love about it, honestly, John, is the uh, the network effect. Because if I helped one person 10 years ago, they've helped hundreds of people themselves in the interim because we carry those values. And like, as you see people getting more and more senior, they can impact more change. Like Sunny Harper, who I mentioned, is Metaret City. Now she's the president of UBS Asset Management. You've got a guy like Ed Hahn, who's now running banking practice at um, Bank of America. There are just so many success stories of veterans in the space, and they're everywhere. Like... You'd be surprised how many... Well, I'll tell you, when I started this veterans network at City, Dick Parsons showed up. He was the chairman of the board. He was an army veteran. Nobody ever knew that. And as he came out, like everyone was like, oh my gosh, really? The second after that, it was Mike O'Neill. He was chairman of the board of Citigroup. He was a Marine, right? Gosh, there's been so many, so many success stories. And it's hard for me just to think about one. But yeah, it's something that just... It's an important part of my professional life. And what you said is so true. I was interviewing one of your peers last week doing another video podcast. And his quote was, you know, John, there's only one difference in letter between not working and networking. And that's kind of profound when I thought about that, because it is so true when you think about that, right? And it's all about contacts and how you can go out and try to secure those relationships and cultivate those relationships. I'm living proof. You shared in the beginning. I've had four jobs since I left the United States Air Force 18 years ago, and all four was not done through the typical resume platform. It was because I knew four people who were able to put me in front of the, the hiring manager and made those decisions there. One of the last questions I want to get to here that's so important, sometimes there's a stigma I find, and I don't know if you would agree with this, Chris, 
that when military members leave, that they may have a hard time be, due to the post-traumatic stress and some of the other life experiences that they've done adopting to the corporate environment. So what advice do you have for those veterans and how do they bring their whole self and their whole worth to work? Yeah, I think there's uh, two ways to think about this. Number one is if you shut your eyes and you think of a Marine, a certain image comes to mind. You shut your eyes and you think of a vet, a much different image comes to mind. And I'd say that that image is much more pronounced for like civilians that have no experience in the military. But as the same person, you're just a day later, you're a vet, not an active duty Marine or airman or soldier. And so I think continuing to educate people about the value of veterans, like we see veterans as incredible assets. The country invested hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in our training. And there's a lot of value that you get through those experiences. We bring to the table qualities that people could only dream of. I remember as I was working, moving my way up the ranks in the bank, like people were scared to death about leading. Yes. And I'm like, really? I've been doing that since I'm 18 years old. Like, that's the easy part. And you bring with you, like, veterans bring these skills you just can't teach. And it's important that the technical proficiency side, you need to work harder. But guess what? You can control your technical proficiency by how hard you work. It just takes a little bit of time and a lot of effort. But you bring those skills that few can even comprehend. Now, let's be realistic. We have plenty of issues in our community. At least 22 people kill themselves every single day in our community. And I'm hearing the numbers potentially even higher and that the numbers aren't even great. There is a real mental health issue. And so what do you do? If you have a mental health issue, do what we do best as veterans. Leverage the community. We're here to help each other. Go on the offense, right? Get help. There are incredible, incredible organizations out there, like Headstrong Project as an example. So take care of what you got to take care of. Don't ignore it. Don't be a tough guy or tough lady. Like it's real and you're not alone. So use the resources at your disposal. Call the VA, use one of these nonprofits, like and address it, manage it, and then get back on offense, right? That and there are so many people in the community that have been there and done that, and they're here to help. I've spoken to plenty of people that are really struggling. And to reach out, talk to other veterans in the space, and we'll get you through. Get involved in some of these nonprofits. Like I was uh, very involved in Team Rubicon. Oh man, like you want to feel good? Go on a Team Rubicon deployment. Be surrounded by fellow veterans again. Help other people. Like I was trying to get some medical studies done on, on just the impact, but I've experienced it myself. There's nothing better than working in 100 degree weather and humidity in Houston, Texas after Hurricane Harvey, helping people that have really been impacted with your fellow veterans, like men and women. It's nothing better than that. So anyway, we're here. The community's here. We're here to help. Well, so very well said. And the one thing that you said is sometimes the the way that the civilian world looks at us, you have to educate them. And you said that well. And I always use the example. My first 12 years that I left the Air Force, I worked in corporate America as an HR executive. Now I'm blessed to work in the best job I've ever had in my life, making a difference in the lives of airmen. But I learned this, and I always ended every single interview this way. And I was up for this really big job. And I ended the interview by saying, ladies and gentlemen, now that we've talked about my education, my experience, my degrees, is there anything that concerns you that would not make me your number one candidate? Now, there's a little bit of bravado, right? So this lady paused and she leaned back and she goes, yes, there's something I'm very concerned about. I said, yes, ma'am, what's that? She goes, I'm concerned about your military experience. So, you know, I could have taken that so many different ways. So I paused and I said, well, ma'am, do you mind if I ask you a question? Sure. Why are you concerned? Do you ever have any family members that ever served in the military? No. So I said, I'm not trying to belittle your impression, but is it fair to say that you have garnered your impressions by what you've seen on television or in movies? <laughs> she goes, and she said, yes. 
And she goes, I'm very concerned that you would come in here and bark orders. I said, well, ma'am, you know what? I'm so glad you brought that out because honestly, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to come in here and say, drop and give me 50 push-ups. That's not the way life is, right? And she admitted, and here we are almost 17 years later with my very first job at the Air Force. She goes, John, if you would not have asked that question, we would not hire you. Oh, wow. So I think it's one of those things where we have to somehow influence and tell folks what it's like to do uh, wear the uniform and that experience. So how I always like to conclude, Chris, is give you the last word. But here's the question I have. One of my favorite interviews on the planet is a guy who's now in his 80s, a guy named Dan Rather. And Dan, as you know, did a lot of stuff in Vietnam and did a lot of reporting in the battlefield. But he now has a TV show on Access TV called The Big Interview. And he ends every single interview with this question. Chris, is there any question that I should have asked you that I didn't? That's a great question. But let's start with the movies first. I think that woman needs to watch better movies. Maybe she was watching Iron Eagle and not Top Gun, just as a Naval Academy graduate. I'm just going to say it. No, but I've really appreciated the conversation today. I think the point is, is that it's imperative that we educate our airmen who are active duty right now, that the transition starts like when you enlist or when you swear your oath, like you need to start thinking about it now. And for many, I'm not saying that means four years from now, it could be 20 years from now, but prepare yourself now. And one thing is you have an incredible network. You may not even know it yet, but you do. And they're all waiting for you. When you're ready to make that transition, reach out, find that doors will open. So would welcome them to join Veterans and Digital Assets if they're interested in Web3. Veterans and Wall Street's going strong. Or if not, there are plenty other sectors that are out there that recognize the value of vets. So thanks for having me on, John. Chris, we really appreciate your time. Obviously, I appreciate your service as a United States Marine and what you're doing now to help veterans in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Airmen Helping Airmen podcast. We will make sure that you receive all of Chris's social media accounts, and I encourage you to go online and check him out. Everybody have a great Air Force Marine Day. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Airmen Helping Airmen, brought to you by the Air Force Aid Society. To find out more about how we make a difference, visit AFAS.org. And then be sure to search for Airmen Helping in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of everyone at the Air Force Aid Society, thanks for listening and join us on social media.